Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Lefty, program of the Victorian Labor College. In the studio is John Lafferty. Morning, everybody. And myself, Chris Gaffney. And we'll be with you until 11 o'clock, and at 10.30 we'll invite you to call up, have your say on anything you want to. Well, uh, police arrested two senior Australian construction trade union officials last weekend in front of their families and charged them with the offence of blackmail over union black bans in 2013. The arrests and the methods used to carry them out, I mean, they didn't arrest them at work, they arrested them in front of their children, are primarily directed against the working class rather than union officials, who in many cases have actually opened the door for such measures. The CMFEU, the Construction, Forestry, Mining and Engineering Union State Secretary John Setka and his deputy Sean Reardon face up to 15 years jail if they're found guilty. Their supposed crime is allegedly to threaten to escalate bans against Boral, a major company, if it didn't stop supplying concrete to Grocon, a construction firm in a dispute with the CMFEU. Now, we've remembered that Grocon has uh, been responsible for some 14 deaths of building workers. Uh, you can understand the attitude of the CMF. And the CMF's crime, it would seem, is being an effective union, actually having an effective tactic against the bosses. Well, you know, the law only permits and allows ineffective tactics. Yeah. Uh, of course, the use of the, cri- of the criminal law to wind, to attack industrial action is a, a wind-back, really, to the days of the 19th century, when workers were in prison for being in prison for being members of the union under so-called Combination Acts in England. And uh, the various criminal charges were used to try and destroy unions. Well, now that's being brought back, where ordinary union a- activity is criminalised. Not just illegal, but actually criminalised. News of the arrest was splashed across the newspapers in an attempt to legitimise this unprecedented move mm. and intimidate workers with the prospect of criminal charges for striking or taking any form of action against employers. And I read the Herald Sun letters on Wednesday. Oh, only that'd be on Wednesday. Well, you know, it was, it was really, uh, you know, very, very fair and balanced. Oh, there was about sure. 25 letters, all... Anti-union. Oh, yeah. Well, even if Everyone. You, you look at their language, too. I mean, the language of the unions, and even on the TV, I was listening to a report where it says union heavies. Yeah. Now, do they Thugs, describe the... heavies, heavies. bullies. That's right. Now, no, do you'd, they never, ever, you'd never get that from a boss. You know? No, no. It's never uh, industry heavies. It's mm. always, you know, the captains of industry or... or I mean, you know, the growlers. <coughs> <coughs> anyway, 7, 000, <coughs> several thousand workers protested outside the court against the charges although the CMFEU denied calling any stoppage for the demonstration. Why? Because it's got to obey the fair work laws introduced by a previous Labor government, which bans all strikes except during union employer enterprise bargaining periods. Mm. So the unions <coughs> got to pretend that they haven't called a strike. Mm. Blackmail is... You, we normally think of blackmail as 
seeking personal gain by coercive or underhanded means. You pay me a hundred bucks or I'll tell your wife you've been cheating on a sort of stuff. However, Setco and Reardon were charged under 80, Section 87 of the Crimes Act, which defines blackmail in such sweeping terms as, quote, making an unwarranted demand with menaces mm. or with a view to gain for himself or another. Mm. So it's vague as. Well, who makes the laws and who do they make them for? Well, that's right. Labor leaders, of course, refused to condemn the criminal charges and lined up behind the prosecution. Daniel Andrews said he would not run a commentary on the case which would not serve anybody's interests. Uh, how, how open-minded of him. Bill Shorten, the federal leader, uh, said he would not preempt the case. However, he did say that he was ang- that uh, uh, it was clear that he was anxious to demonstrate to big business that a future Labor government would crack down on further industrial action. Shorten also released a new blueprint calling for new coercive investigative powers in the hands of industrial law regulators and a doubling of penalties for all workplace law breaches. I mean, this is, this is the union's party, presumably. Any person sentenced to a jail term of longer than 12 months will no longer be able to hold a trade union post. As for the Royal Commission itself, the Labour leaders are exploiting revelations of corrupt union officials to bolster police powers to punish any action by workers that threaten corporate interests. <clears throat> While criticising the Royal Commission as a political stunt by the federal government, Shorten is moving to embrace, embrace the thrust of his recommendations. The Labour government of Hawke and Keating from 83 to 96, working in close collaboration with the trade unions, were directly responsible for opening the door for punitive measures against strikes and other forms of industrial action. For more than a decade, the penal powers of the Arbitration Committee were a virtual dead letter. After 1969, when they, the government tried to jail the tramways union leader, Clary O'Shea, and it failed. And that basically killed off those penal powers until they were revived by the Labor government. Central to the accords between unions and the Labor government was the suppression of industrial action by workers in the name of making Australian business more competitive. We might remember the Seaquib dispute in 85-86, the struggle by meat workers and mudgeon brewing in the Northern Territory, uh, and the mudgeonry sellout of meat workers opened the door to escalating punitive lawsuits, starting with the imposition of common law damages over picketing at Dollar Suites in 86, and a fine of 280000 against the Plumbers Union in 1987 for implementing work bans. Then came the Hawke government's deregistration of the builders' labourers in '86. It was an attempt to end militancy on construction sites, with the complete backing of the ACTU and the Building Workers Industrial Union, the forerunner of the CMFEU. As well as enforcing these and other attacks on workers' struggles, the unions broke up elected shop committees and other forms of rank-and-file organisation that prevented obstacles to their pro-business collaboration. These betrayals by the trade union leadership and the ALP paved the way for the coalition of Howard from 96 to 2007 to deepen the assault on workers' rights through its system of enterprise bargaining and individual contracts encapsulated in the work choices legislation. Under the Rudd-Gillard Labor governments of 2007 to 13, 
the unions helped draft and impose the current fair work laws, incorporating all of the anti-strike measures contained in work choices. The unions enforced this legislative straitjacket in the working class, driving down levels of stoppages to actually historic lows, while paying heavy fines. Earlier this year, the CMFEU paid $9 million to Borel and $3.55 million to Grocon to settle law disputes. Decades of unions collaborating with management and suppressing rank-and-file activity, combined with repressive laws enacted by Labor and the Coalition, have now created the political conditions for a dramatic escalation on the attack of the rights of workers and the return of criminal prosecutions against ordinary people. So we offer our solidarity to the uh, CMFEU in every sense. <clears throat> now, you wanted to talk about a topic that actually alarmed me. What was it? Alarms? <laughs> uh, can, I, can I borrow your glasses, please? Sure. Chris? I've forgotten the glasses yet. Yeah. I, think, I think this is psychological. I don't really like wearing glasses. But um, yeah, this, this shocks you, does it? Huh? This surprises well, you. Well, John said that he was going to talk about uh, Shirley Bassey. That's all I could get out of him. And I thought, this doesn't look... <laughs> anyway, go If on. I can read it, I will try to speak about Shirley Bassey. Anyway, um, sometimes on this program uh, we hear the song um, History Repeating from 1997, which is by a uh, song by Dame Shirley, Dame Shirley Bassey with the group The Propeller Heads. I don't know why uh, we play this song. I'm assuming it's because of the great Karl Marx quote, history repeats itself, first is tragedy and second is farce, one of the great quotes. Mm -hmm. But it has to be said that Shirley Bassey is no Marxist. Far from it, as a clue, she accepted a gong from the Queen. Also, two of her most famous songs, because this really is a point, I think her, her, uh, her, her, her philosophical beliefs, two of her most famous songs are Diamonds Are Forever, and hey, big spender, spend a little time with me. However, what really put Shirley on the map in a political sense was her decision to perform at Sun City in South Africa from 1981 to 1984. Sun City was a luxury resort and a casino opened in 1979. It was located in what was then known as Bofuthatswana, Bofuthatswana had been declared an independent state by South Africa's apartheid government, but not one other country recognised it, although if you look at some sources it will say Israel recognised it. Well, they were <laughs> prime trading partners. They very much were militarily and, uh, and diplomatically very closely linked, as was Taiwan. Well, so, they're both uh, apartheid states. Well, yeah, this is the thing. But uh, the Sun City complex was initially an attempt to circumvent South Africa's anti-gambling laws. It didn't officially ban black South Africans attending, I thought it had, but it was just made so expensive that few black South Africans could afford to visit. As such, it became a playground for rich white South Africans. It also became a lure for many popular Western entertainers. Despite the fact that Sun City was officially boycotted by the United Nations, many performers chose to put profit before principle to play there. Little list of some of those who chose to play there. Paul Anker, Liza Minnelli, Julio Iglesias, Glenn Campbell, Linda Ronstadt, Elton John, Cher, and... I'm a bit of a fan. Rod Stewart. Right. 
An estimated 1.5 million and up to uh, 2 million was made by Frank Sinatra in his time, as if he needed the money. Bands which played Sin, uh, Sun City, or Sin City, you might call it, Sun City included the Beach Boys, and Brian Wilson's out on tour at the moment, uh, Black Sabbath, who also got a bit of a run on 3CR, Status Quo, and Queen. Queen played there. Right. Queen have actually been strongly criticised for their decision to do so. And as for status quo, well, I'm sure even you know the Coles advert with status quo, Chris. No. It, you don't know? <laughs> Dan, Dan, prices oh, are is down. Oh, them, is it? That's them, yeah, the plastic, fake plastic all guitars. All those old blokes playing guitars. Well, two old blokes. Right, right. Younger than you, maybe, but older than me. But uh, <laughs> playing fake plastic guitars and totally selling themselves out. And, uh, yeah, it just, shows, just goes oh, to show. Oh, they're an actual re- recognised band. Well, they were. Oh. I, 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 love, I love the status quo. You know, right. I, I, I've been listening to them now. What a come down. Huh? What a come down doing Cole's uh, advert. Yeah. They must have got paid a fortune to do it. Yeah, but they, they sell themselves. It's just like this whole thing. Yeah, it's yeah. printing profit before print. Just selling yourself. Selling yeah, of course, yourself. of course. Pathetic. Now, this is a bit controversial, but even black performers were willing to perform for the wealthy of apartheid South Africa. A few surprises here. One shocking, I believe. These included Tina Turner, Dion Warwick, Warwick, and the biggest surprise, Chris, Ray Charles. Really? Yeah. Ray Charles had supported the civil rights movement in the 1960s, yet in 1981 he too performed at Sun City and was rightly criticised for it. Shirley Bassey, just to get back to your favourite was the daughter of a Nigerian father and a British mother. She was a repeat offender, and I think that is the reason why she's most often, along with Queen, she's most often criticised for playing Sun City, because she did it over a period of four years. Right. It was a classic example of money doesn't talk, it swears. Some people argued that it didn't matter if the performers were black or white. Based on the fact that South African society at that time was clearly divided along black and white lines, it did matter. I believe it did. Some people think it didn't. Had a black performer well, such... Well, to sell out of your black brothers and sisters who are struggling outside uh, the, the, and you're the, singing for the rich and pampered white yeah, swine. Yeah. Mm. Had a black performer such as Ray Charles, who, as I said before, was a civil rights campaigner in the 60s, had he come from South Africa instead of the US, he would have found it almost impossible to even get in the audience, never mind be the star <laughs> on stage. Yes, yes. Not based on yes, of course. how he looked. This would have been based on his skin colour, which under that regime would determine his social status. In 1985, an entertainer's response was made to the stars who chose to give credibility to apartheid. In that year, a group called United Artists Against Apartheid was found, was formed. The leader was Stevie Van Zandt. Stevie Van Zandt is famous as Bruce Springsteen's guitarist, and he's also a TV and a movie actor. Van Zandt wrote the song, We Ain't Gonna Play Sun City, and he brought together a wide range of performers from the world of rock and rap, mainly punk, actually, to perform it on video. It wasn't always easy for Van Zandt. Initially, his Dutch surname raised eyebrows among some black South Africans he got on side, the Dutch settlers being the founders of white South Africa. He also had to resist the temptation to name on the record 
uh, the people I just named there, the artist who had played Sun City, references to specific uh, performers did appear on demo copies but were left out of the final version of the song. A list of some of the United Artists Against Apartheid, who we might call the good guys, included Bruce Springsteen, Miles Davis, Bob Dylan, Lou Reed, Pat Benatar, Herbie Hancock, Peter Gabriel, Africa Bambata, Keith Richards, Gil Scott Heron and Joey Ramon. Hall & Oates, I've not been a fan of Hall & Oates, but I am a fan now. Hall & Oates reportedly turned down US $2 million to play at the complex. Sure. Pretty much what Frank Sinatra took, they turned down. And really, they, their career was, they were not really a very big band for very long, mm-hmm. but they at least had the decency and the integrity to do that. So uh, respect to them. Uh, as for Joy Ramon, um, some US stations actually banned um, this song because of, because of this line, jo- Joey Ramon's line, constructive engagement is Ronald Reagan's plan. Doesn't seem such an offensive line to... Uh, yeah, you'd have to view it in context, I suppose. <laughs> well, at the time, both the United States and I believe the UK government used the same phrase, constructive Engagement. Now, yeah, right. Let's have constructive engagement with the apartheid regime as long as we're speaking to them and and they're taking no notice. Trading with them, <laughs> making money with them. You know, they will yeah. gradually we'll be change. Mates with them and they'll come round to our way of thinking. I mean, yeah, Reagan and Thatcher's right. way of thinking. Yes, that's right. Uh, in fact, economically, this meant business as usual. This was the Reagan and Thatcher years, and they they, they didn't they weren't the slightest bit interested in change. They wanted. Keep, keep carrying on, keep the sh- companies like Shell and the like to keep uh, trading. Now, a couple of little interesting footnotes. Uh, the rock group Queen, of course, played at Sun City in 1984 at the same time as Nelson Mandela was in jail in Robben Island. They actually played at Mandela's 90th birthday party. We all know that Mandela changed after he came out of jail. That's, I suppose, another subject. But uh, mm. I would say that Mandela was either very forgiving or Queen were very hypocritical, maybe a little bit of both. Um, the United Artists Against Apartheid, you know, this is the 1980s, but they weren't the first performers to criticise apartheid. George Formby, you know George Formby, right? Yes. When I'm cleaning windows, yeah, you always spin about it. When I'm cleaning windows, right, okay. Why don't From, women like me? Hey, hey. I don't know that one. Why don't women like me? Hey, hey. <laughs> Go on. The, uh, sounds like another classic. Oh, a total uh, Yeah, working class hero. From Lancashire, in England, north of England. George Formby went on a tour of South Africa right at the start of the regime in the late 1940s. Despite threats from the National Party leader Daniel Francois Milan, he played to black audiences. At one point, George's formidable wife, Beryl, embraced a three-year-old black girl who presented her with a box of chocolates. Right. A, three, a three, three-year-old little girl. Yeah. Um, Milan, the, the National Party leader, later ordered the Formies out of South Africa and never to return. And Beryl uh, Formby reportedly gave this typical Northern English response, why don't you piss off, you horrible little man? <laughs> uh, there was also an urban myth. This was a, a very interesting website I got onto. There was an urban myth that went around that the Soviet Union awarded George Formby the Order of Lenin. Have you heard that one before? No, I haven't. Well, apparently it's not true. Uh, it doesn't sound Maybe true. they should. <laughs> Maybe they, well, they gave one to Kim Phil, but... Well, that's quite a bit yeah, different, A I bit different. <laughs> 
a little bit different, yeah, I suppose so. Anyway, uh, sticking with the uh, musical theme, and just for the cool cats out there, today is the 50th anniversary of the founding of the Velvet Underground. December the 11th, 1965. Well, I never. The VU, Lou Reed's original band, great band. Uh, check them out if you, if you don't. I'll just leave with a quick plug. I'll give this one last week, but it's coming up. I think it might be quite interesting. At half past three on the 19th of December, which is tomorrow week, uh, at Northcourt Town Hall, there's going to be a meeting, and it's the SCP which is running the meeting. And the meeting, the, the talk, and there'll be a discussion afterwards, is called How and Why the GPU, the Soviet Secret Police, Murdered Leon Trotsky. Half past three, tomorrow week, that's 19th of December, at the Northcourt Town Hall. You want your glasses back? I do want my glasses back. So you want to get them off. All right, well, during the week you would have noticed uh, Tony Abbott giving some really helpful advice to the uh, Muslim people that, that they ought to have a reformation like the Christians did. The thing, someone was saying that if, if Tony Abbott back in the day of the actual reformation, well, he'd might, have been leading the counter-reformation. Well, that was my first point. I mean, <laughs> Sorry, <Matt>. it's absolutely... <laughs> It's absolutely ludicrous for this Catholic, this uh, fanatical Catholic, right-wing Catholic to be talking like this because if there was anybody burning heretics, it was his lot. It was anybody opposing burning scientists, burning astronomers and uh, generally trying to retard human progress. It was the Catholic Church and that's Tony's church. But history was never strong, Tony's strong point. Uh, but he ca- greatest he called for uh, um, he called for the the Muslims to have their own reformation, and uh, I addressed this point last week as to well, in a way, yes, the Muslims do need their own reformation, but but what's prevented is the West because the West has no interest, material interest, in lifting. These backward countries, and I mean backward technologically, I don't mean that the people are innately backward, but you know, the level of productive forces is very, very, very low. Um, now, Tony, Tony Abbott is simply a reflection of a worldwide reaction. And, of course, on Monday, Donald Trump, the billionaire candidate for the Republicans, called for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States. He's a right-wing Catholic turbulo. Is he? I didn't realise he's a Catholic. Following the terror attacks in Paris and San Benito, California. This is the la- only the latest in a series of increasingly violent demands from Donald Trump. Ted Cruz also called for a ban on Muslim but not Christian refugees from Syria last month. And the Louisiana Governor, Bobby Jindal, who said he had ordered state police to place mosques under surveillance. The resurgence of such reactionary political demands in the United States is mirrored in other imperialist countries, and clearly the presence of uh, Tony Abbott and his uh, co-thinkers is the Australian side of this, not to mention uh, the various little fascist groups that have grown up. You're just in- making me giggle by saying Tony Abbott's a thinker, anyway. A stinker, more like. <laughs> in Britain... In Britain uh, Prime Minister David Cameron has branded opponents of the war in Syria as terrorist sympathisers. So, if you're anti-war, you're a terrorist sympathiser. Don't worry about the logic of that. In France, Marine Le Pen's neo-fascist National Front received the largest share of the vote in this week's regional elections amidst the effective uh, abrogation of democratic rights by the government of Francois Hollande and the promotion of a climate of fear and hysteria in the wake of the November 13 attacks in Paris. Throughout Europe, 
there's been a deliberate whipping up of anti-Muslim chauvinism in response to the refugee crisis, as all the major powers seek to justify their plans for an expansion of the war in Syria. In the United States, the uh, statements by Trump have been met with self-righteous indignation by politicians and media figures who say how shocked they are by these statements. Who are they kidding? The blathering of this imbecile expresses only in a more concentrated form the perpetual hysteria one hears every day in the media. Look at the Herald Sun. Look at the Herald Sun on almost any days if you want to guide for that. President Obama posed as a critic of Republican calls for targeting Muslims. And yet the Obama administration is responsible for the continuation of an imperialist policy in the Middle East that's in devastated entire countries with at least a million people, mainly Muslims, killed in the process. The fact is that imperialist war always is accompanied by attacks on democratic rights and the whipping up of xenophobia. The period of the Korean War was the heyday of the McCarthyite wish hunts on socialists in the trade union and entertainment industry. The French colonial war in Algeria brought the country to the brink of civil war, including the massacre of peaceful demonstrators and the invocation of a state of emergency. During the Vietnam War, the FBI in the US massively infiltrated political organisations and oversaw the assassination of oppositional figures, including members of the Black Panthers. During every imperialist war, the ruling class seeks to cultivate the most backward and racist elements. The war on terror, which has led to the deaths of at least a million Muslims, is no different, creating an environment in which racist hysteria is relentlessly promoted in the media. You seem to be having some problem there. You don't agree with us? No. What, what problem it's am I just, uh... You seem to have a look on your face that you didn't agree with me. Um, oh, there's little bits where I think maybe it goes a little bit too far, you know. Like what? Um, no, well, there's a few, few little bits. Generally speaking, I, I would... Uh, but no, there's little things. I'd need to sort of have a look at it. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't think it's necessary. It's really necessary. This the, the idea of whipping up racism is really necessarily a part of the agenda. I don't really see how that's, you know... Well, you don't think inc- there's... You don't think, uh, there's profit? A- well, I mean, it, it, it for a start, it keeps the working class nice and divided. If you've got all the white, uh, well, all the only, white workers, well, only, well, only if we're stupid enough to fall into this sort of, you know, the Melton scenario. If if we, if we, you know, we get a lot of folk are and want to take this up as being, as being the great cause. Well, they're relying know. on the stupid yeah. people. No, but I, yeah, no. Hang on a second. No, hang on a second. So the three CR audiences going. Hang on. Muslims. Hang on a second. If, if if you're going to be actually be wasting your time saying, "Hey, we've got to fight the fascists. We've got to encourage them." I mean, the UPF. Give me a break. The UPF was the tiny little m- bunch of morons, right? Who would have come and gone in a flash if they weren't given so much damn publicity by who? Well, by the left. But well, no. I mean, give me a yes, no, Christopher. No, no. Yes, I mean the left. The yes, left. indeed. Don't draw but attention. That, Don't give them so much oxygen. Too late. The media, mm. the media gave them extensive covering. The ABC did interviews, did interviews on Australian Story with Australian patriots and the like of these creeps. So, <laughs> if, but the, do, le- but if the left reacted um, to it, no. let me finish. If the left reacted to it, it was because the mass media promoted their message. Of course, they would say it's shocking, it's shocking, shocking. But 
they, you know, there is a there is a an anti-Muslim bias. The media in will the, press. the media will look for controversy. They will report if the Melbourne Anarchist Club or whoever is sort of you know you know doing something particularly radical. They're young folk. I mean, this is what young folk do. Whether yeah. it's right and in inverted commas or left and in inverted commas, they're going to do this. And the media, right? A lot of them will be looking for the easy story for the controversy. So they're they're going to be drawn to it for that for that reason. For you to be, say, be saying that they're deliberately whipping up, I don't really, I don't really see that. I mean, I think most folk would have, uh, you know, did and would condemn, for instance, Hanson, even reclaim Australia, and UPF are way the extreme of that, you know, and very, very small. So no, I stick to believing that actually um, the so the left, the so-called left, uh, are giving them oxygen and actually are giving them more strength in doing that. And that's what I believe. This is not uh, Germany in the 1920s. Nothing like it. Well, no, no one suggest, no one's suggesting uh, that we're in a situation of Germany uh, here, but every time there's a shooting in the United States... Every no, time not, not true, not true at all. You don't the last, know what I'm going to say. The last... Well, no, I think I do. It's, oh, it's fairly predictable. Say, <laughs> it's fairly predictable. But say, you, you, no, you, you were looking at me. I was not raising my eyebrows. I was not looking concerned. You want me to be concerned. No, you no. want to create... You're being Mr. Gaffney provocateur. <laughs> provocateur. And so I'll give it to you. But the last time there was a, a big shooting, I think it was 14 people killed. The two people who, who, were, who were killed or killed themselves were killed or killed themselves were Muslim. Mm. And I read the Herald Sun for the next day and there was no link between them being Muslim and terrorism. And I was like amazed by that, that there was no link because this goes against what we're always hearing. I think they were doing that, but I don't think they're doing it so much. I think I think the uh, rhetoric has actually changed to how saying, you know, the, the, there's the, we, we must speak, we must speak, we must have dialogue. But what's going on now in the Middle East? <laughs> We've gone you call way... That dialogue? Well, that's what I'm saying. We've gone so far beyond that. You know, with Russians now being in there... When was we've the gone last so, time? We've gone so but far beyond that. Let's look at who the enemies are. Fundamentalist Islam is never a friend of the progressive left. Of course not. No, it never said, no will be. You know. So it's just that when was the last know, time? If you want me involved, you behold. You don't hold your breath. No, I'm no, not jumping in there. No, you don't have to jump any any way at all. But when was the last time that the, a shooter was described as a Christian? Quite often, Breivik, oh, Breivik in Norway. It was extensive that Breivik in Norway was a right-wing, anti-Muslim, Christian so fundamentalist. When Timothy McVeigh blew up the, the place in Oklahoma... Oh, you've gone back a few years now. Well, well, I what mean, difference does that make? No, it makes he the, wasn't described as a Christian. Uh, it, makes the, well, it makes the difference because um, I think we really are speaking about the post, as they call it, 9-11... Um, um, world of, you know, the, the sort of language that has been used since 9-11 and Breivik fitted in perfectly with but that. Breivik was a, pass, a, a mass murderer and Breivik, his, his, his beliefs, stated beliefs, were pointed out all the time. Why wouldn't they be? You know, I mean, I don't see that... Well, because he was probably explicit about it, but what I'm saying is if... I'm, if and the guy shouting, Allah Akbar, this is for Syria... And stabbing a completely innocent person is not being explicit. 
Well, that's being that's being. I'm not suggesting that there aren't Muslims. There aren't Muslims who engage in, in terror. What I'm, what well, I'm saying. Well, that's good. What? Well, yeah. But what and I'm they saying. And they, they do know, it. What I'm saying is, if a person who commits a terror act is a Muslim, it's always mentioned as the principal fact about that terror. But if they're Christian, unless they specifically say, "I'm doing this for Jesus," they're not described as Christian. And yet. Ha- the the in last the episode in San Bernardino proves you wrong, Chris. Check the United, out the Herald Sun the day after, and you'll be proven wrong. In the last, in the last year, there have been three hundred and fifty mass murders mm. in the United yep. States. Now, what then? Now, I would say that ninety nine percent of those were done by good old Christians. How many times was it mentioned? Really? But you do ha- really? you you do say that you're anti-religion, but you always focus on one religion, which is rather hypocritical, and that's Christianity. Now, hang on a second. Get a copy of the Herald Sun. I might even have a copy floating around. Get a copy of the Herald Sun the day after San Bernardino and read what they say, and you will see that what you're saying is bullshit. It took read it and then get back to me. No, no, no. It took days for them to realise to confirm. That these people the very committed the same. That it, the very next no, day. No, but it took some time. There was no for, conjecture on the long no, those lines. There was, no, it took some time for them to reach the conclusion that these people were in fact Muslims. And once they were Muslims, that was it. Not it true. It was a Muslim attack. <laughs> Not true. Not anyway, true at okay. all. Read the reports where it was well known that they were Muslim. It was well known that his, his friends and neighbours said he was a very religious man. His wife... He'd come from, he'd gone and got his wife from Saudi Arabia. She too was very religious and dressed apart and everything like this, okay? So, and there was no link. Get the newspaper from that day yeah, yeah. and read the words and you will see. Look, well, okay. The, the, the language changes, Chris, and you've got to keep up with that. It changes. But there was a time when they were doing that, but they're not really doing that so much now. No. I don't believe it's in their interest to do that. To do what? To be to be necessarily de- uh, demonising, as you would say, entire religious group. Not necessarily, not not really necessary at this point. Things change. Well, it is necessary at this point because they keep doing it and they keep not identifying the normal attacks as Christian. Well, no. people, okay, well, well, give me an example no, of we, the last one. We can't. We can't talk. We got people waiting to ring up. It's your chance to ring up to stop this brawling between us two. The number to ring is nine four one nine zero one double five. Nine four sorry nine four one nine zero one double five nine four one nine zero one double five any topic we've talked about it or not. You've been listening to a three CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station three CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.